Next, this month's special series focus on disaster medicine and preparedness. Unforeseen disasters carry unique challenges and learning opportunities. This month, we present conversations that scrutinize our plans and protocols and ask, how prepared are we? How will we react? Some 2 million people acquire bacterial infections in U.S. hospitals each year, and 90,000 of those patients die as a result. It seems the very facilities built to heal actually need to be treated themselves. Our guest today will explain how many recommendations for disaster preparedness may also improve daily operations and patient safety. You are listening to a special segment on disaster preparedness on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Mark Smith, Chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Washington Hospital Center and Director of the ER1 Institute. Dr. Smith, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I know that you are the director of a project that's designing and building emergency rooms and hospitals that are disaster ready. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Our location here in Washington, D.C. makes us responsible for providing care in a city which is a prime target of a terrorist attack, which has already suffered actually two such attacks, one on September 11th with the uh, the attack on the Pentagon, and then another a month later with the anthrax attacks. So our hospital played a major role in responding to both. We're the busiest emergency department and the biggest hospital actually by a factor of three in the, in the District of Columbia. So this whole area of emergency preparedness is something that we have taken extremely seriously. In fact, our board of directors declared it a, a core strategic director for the institution. It's, I think, one of the only hospitals I know that has actually selected emergency preparedness and recognized its importance to the community that the hospital serves. Mark, what are some of the innovations from this project that you think if were incorporated into newly built or renovated hospitals would really improve the operation of those hospitals? I think it's important to ask how you conceive of emergency preparedness. Is it a kind of separate stream that you set up systems and open up and design spaces that are to be used only during a mass casualty incident? Or do you try to design spaces and put in processes in place that are also useful during daily operations as well? And it's the latter, the kind of doctrine of daily routine that we have we have striven so hard to take for, for direction to take for a number of reasons. First of all, it's very hard to justify uh, spending lots of money on an empty space that, that isn't used only except in a rare instance. It's also very hard to know that that space and those systems are going to work if they're not being constantly tested in the crucible of daily experience. And so we've always striven for strategies to put into place designs and systems that are strong enough and robust enough to work during a mass casualty incident, but work and help out and are useful during day-to-day operations as well. If we focus on infection control, what strategies and recommendations that came out of Project ER1 can help with that? Well, the two key strategies there are, one, a a clear focus on ventilation systems and with attention to the number of negative pressure isolation rooms that you're building. Our recommendation is that every room in the emergency department should have that capability of being a negative pressure isolation room. We're also conditioning the air coming in with HEPA filtration and UV light to make sure that air, any air that is recirculated is not spreading contamination. And that's something that is useful not only in the rare, uh, extremely rare, if never event, a never event like smallpox, but it's also useful for regular influenza, for avian flu influenza, for multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. Another recommendation, and we're testing out, and we think that hospitals need to pay a lot more attention to surface contamination with microbes. We know, for example, that one of the most 
serious hospital-acquired or healthcare-associated infections as Clostridium difficile. And we do know that those spores do exist and survive on surfaces. And so we're looking at strategies to try to mitigate that, one of which is the use of antimicrobial or immune surface technology, copper or silver impregnated coatings. We are actually testing now whether these do reduce the bacterial load. We don't know for sure they do, but we want to be trying that out and testing that out. Mark, what about that old-fashioned thing I heard of washing hands? I heard that helps. Washing hands is the core, the core foundation. But I think that, like most things, things are multiply determined. We want hand washing with soap and water, hand washing with the antiseptic solutions that we have virtually in every room right now, cuts things down dramatically. But if you have ventilation systems that spread disease, then your hand washing, it will not be sufficient. Mm -hmm. And then what about just private rooms instead of shared rooms in the hospital, not necessarily the emergency room? That's clearly the trend now. And I think virtually every new hospital that's being built is being built to the private room specifications. We still have an installed base of hospitals in this country that have a lot of semi-private rooms. And, you know, it's one of these things that if your choice is between no care or care in a semi-private room, we're obviously going to opt for care in the semi-private room. Are there any studies that have shown that, you know, the, the extra costs of single rooms actually pay off? They certainly pay off from a patient satisfaction perspective. And I don't know, I'm not familiar with any that discuss the reduced spread of hospital-acquired infections by using single rooms as opposed to shared rooms, but there may well be that in the literature. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to a special segment on disaster preparedness on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. My guest today is Dr. Mark Smith, chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Washington Hospital Center and director of the ER1 Institute. And we're talking about how really being ER prepared actually makes good sense in non-emergencies and can actually improve daily operations of a hospital and patient safety. Mark, there's new rules coming out of Medicare, Medicaid, where they're actually making the hospital responsible for their mistakes and aren't going to pay for infections that are acquired in the hospital. Do you think your designs are going to help with that? I certainly hope so. I, I do think, though, it's not just the facility design that's required in order to make this, in order to reduce infection. The two other things that I would I would call your attention to and are good examples of where systems that were designed to work for the for in the mass casualty situation help the daily operation are in training systems and in our information infrastructure. So let's talk about training for a moment. Training is really the great unsolved problem in disaster preparedness because you're asking people to to do things that they typically don't do during daily operations, maybe use equipment they don't know how to use, and take care of situations that they're not used to taking care of. So how do you solve that when there, when there is basically no excess capacity in a hospital right now or there's staff turnover? We developed at our institution a online training system in its own learning management case that we developed for emergency preparedness. It was so successful that we had clinical departments, administrative departments asking us to use it for non-emergency situations. And as of last January, there are 25,000 employees in MedStar Health, which is the parent corporation of Washington Hospital Center, they switched to this learning management system that has robust capability, capability we built for emergency preparedness, and now we're using in daily operations. Well, I read an article in a recent Wall Street Journal that hospitals are using a SWAT team approach known as antimicrobial stewardship programs. It's really a software program that really starts in the ER that takes into account 
all the bugs in that hospital and the particular resistances in that hospital and gets everyone involved from the microbiologists, the infectious disease department, the emergency room department. So they actually pick the right antibiotic and the computer actually tells them, you know, which one they can. So it kind of avoids this kind of shotgun approach in the emergency rooms. I think being cognizant of the particular resistance patterns that are occurring in your hospital as opposed to occurring nationally, because all medicine is local, that would be, strikes me as being something that would be very beneficial to patient care. I also add, having a robust information infrastructure that underlines infection protection, I think is real important. We just the process of sunshining data, which is, sounds like the program you're describing as an example of, can have tremendously beneficial effect. Just recently, we deployed a single information field that is on our hospital information system throughout the hospital that is maintained by infection control that tells us, that tells everybody looking at it whether this patient has had in the past MRSA or C. diff, and it has raised the level of alertness of the staff as well as the, the, the bed board people, the people making bed assignments, and our infection control director thinks that this is already in one month having an impact of having patients not being placed in rooms with other patients they shouldn't be placed in. And just by elevating and sunshining information through an information system, you, I think, can have a major, a major effect because these are, hospitals are very complex systems. Um, when all the evidence is in, do you foresee a design standard that will actually eliminate shared hospital rooms, barring extraordinary hardships such as a natural disaster or terrorist attack? I'm not on any of the AIA healthcare design committees. As I said before, that does seem to be the way things are going, and whether they get incorporated in standards, I suspect they probably will if they aren't, aren't already. And what is the financial cost of really trying to raise the bar so you can be disaster prepared? Is it that expensive? There is an incremental cost in the short run, but I would probably say the total cost of ownership and the total return on investment actually makes it a net plus in the end and not a net, net dollar minus. Do you think all hospitals should be designed to that standard? All medicine's local. Hospitals have to know what their own threat spectrum, their hazard vulnerability analysis shows. But I think that by designing hospitals with scalability in mind, with specialized capability in mind for the extraordinary situation, they can actually enhance their daily operations. And let's talk a little bit more about the Project One Emergency Room Department. It's been open for a while. And have you seen a decrease in infection rates? Is it being measured? Our BridgeDR1 project has been open since April 1st. It's a 10-room, 20-bay extension. We actually had to compromise and put two patients in a room because of the press of patients that we have. We're the busiest emergency department in, in the nation's capital. And we were letting the systems settle down. We're about to start measuring. It's very difficult to get good data on infection. It's especially difficult to, to know whether people acquire an infection in the emergency department or not. So that we're going to be using surrogate markers for infection. We're going to be doing, we're swabbing countertops and looking to see, and, and walls, and looking to see if the, if the microbial load with the systems we put in place is less than in our old space that has not had the same type of uh, surface covering. So we're going to be measuring things, but showing reductions in infection, at least in the emergency department setting, is going to be very, very difficult to do. If we move away from infections and just talk about communications. What have you done that actually has an impact in daily operations from the project ER1? We recognize, as I said, that the systems that 
almost always fail during these events are the information systems and the communication systems. And I'll give you two examples of things where we're extending our current information system to provide a phenomenal, I think, communications tool and solve the family reunification problem. It's a problem that families had, say, in New York on 9-11 when they would rush from hospital to hospital trying to find their loved one because there was no central repository of who was in which emergency department. By combining that information, and we're going to be doing it in District of Columbia over the next six months, we're going to have seven hospitals contributing their emergency department data that the Department of Health or Department of Human Services District Government would be able to locate a patient for a family member in time of need. There is one example of uh, information communication. Another is the whole problem of notification of uh, how do you get notified that an event is occurring. You know, people carry pagers, they carry cell phones, they have a home phone, they have a work phone. And we just uh, recently purchased a very elegant piece of middleware that enables all of our staff to have all of their contact information placed, and we can activate and access all four or five contact numbers at once. This is something we're not going to be using not only during the mass casualty incident, but we're going to be using it in day-to-day operations by having people in contact groups and be able to contact folks in time of need, whether it's a snow emergency or just a general announcement that there is a grand rounds going on. We think that's going to be very helpful. Well, Dr. Mark Smith, the chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Washington Hospital Center and director of the ER1 Institute. Thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to a special segment on disaster preparedness on ReachMD. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library of shows with on-demand podcasts. And thanks for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Disaster Medicine and Preparedness. For a program guide and complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com and download ReachMD's new iPhone application, Medical Radio. Listen to the same live stream of ReachMD medical news and information you enjoy on XM160. Plus, CME and thousands of searchable podcasts. Download the Medical Radio app today.